Welcome to the Mind Dive Podcast, brought to you by the Menninger Clinic, a national leader in mental health care. We're your hosts, Dr. Bob Boland and Dr. Carrie Harrell. Twice monthly, we dive into mental health topics that fascinate us as clinical professionals, and we explore those unexpected dilemmas that arise while treating patients. Join us for all of this, plus the latest research and perspectives from the minds of distinguished colleagues near and far. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Mind Dive podcast. Uh, today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Sheldon Benjamin. Dr. Benjamin is a professor of psychiatry and neurology. He's the director of neuropsychiatry and he's a vice chair for education at the University of Massachusetts T.H. Chan School of Medicine, where he was director of psychiatry residency training for 25 years. And he founded the combined neurology and, neuro- and psychiatry residency training program in 1997. He's boarded in both psychiatry and neurology and also behavioral neurology, neuropsychiatry. He is the past president of the American Neuropsychiatric Association of ANPA and the American Association of Directors of Psychiatry Residency Training. Currently, uh, he's a director of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Uh, He's won many teaching awards, including the UMass Chan Chancellor's Medal for Distinguished Teaching and ANPA's Gary J. Tucker Lifetime Achievement Award in Neuropsychiatry. Poof. Okay. Welcome, Dr. Benjamin. We're so excited to have you. Yes. Welcome. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Great. So, you know, one of the reasons we asked you is because of a very compelling grand rounds that you did here at Baylor. Well, you weren't here. It was virtual, but you did it. Uh, where you, it was based on a, uh, I think, 2018 article that you wrote in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neuroscience. And the title of the article is Six Landmark Case Reports Essential for, I'm sorry, Neuropsychiatric Literature. L- literacy. Uh, was it literacy? Okay. Okay. That Actually, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, whatever it's called, I recommend the article. And, you know, all the cases in there are really fascinating. But you know, I'd like to talk about one case that I'd never really heard of before you mentioned it, and that's the case of JP. But before we get into the case, uh, can I just ask you, how, how did you get interested in the case? Why did you uh, pursue that? This goes back quite a ways. When I was a behavioral neurology fellow back in the mid-1980s, I was trying to read everything I could about the function of the frontal lobes. I had an inclination that frontal function was important for behavior and and personality. Um, One of my mentors pointed out that there was this case from 1948 that I might want to read. I read this 1948 paper by uh, Spafford Ackerley and Arthur Benton, and I couldn't believe it. The case report had a comprehensive description of this patient's childhood and his personality, and what happened to him in young adulthood. I don't think I'd ever seen a case report with this much detail. And I sort of filed it away in the back of my mind, pretty much thinking, maybe one day I'll come back to this. And uh, about for that 2018 paper, we were trying to decide what are the most important case reports in neuropsychiatry if somebody wanted to read them all. Mm-hmm. And we went through a process of trying to figure that out, consulting experts and things. He made the cut. And I thought, gee, maybe I should go back to that. And 
began reading it and learning more about it and really went down the rabbit hole as I like to do when I get involved in uh, in a particular case. Well, go, let me ask you about that. Was it hard to do that? Because you really do. Uh, you um, you even dig up a, a, a pneumoencephalogram. And I don't think people probably know what that is. It's an old I method sh- of uh, I sure don't. <laughs> visualizing. Do you, want, do you want to tell us what a pneumoencephalogram is? Uh. Yeah. So back um, when I was starting my neurology residency, pneumoencephalography had already sunset. But prior to us having CAT scans, and then of course, way before MRI scans, the pneumoencephalogram was the only way of getting a picture of the brain that was more than just a two-dimensional image. Unfortunately, it was an extremely excruciating thing to put patients through. Um, They would be in a special tilting chair, Mm -hmm. have a spinal tap, the needle would be put in, and air would be injected into the spinal canal. And then the person would be tilted. Oh, no. You know how air goes up in liquid. So the person is tilted until the air goes up to the brain. Then they're put face down, face back, different, until you get the air to go wherever there isn't brain. Uh, and uh, it that sound that does sound excruciating. Yeah, I mean, was, for one thing, you must have had a heck of a headache at the end. You get a you get a heck of a headache um, when JP had this study done. Doctor Ackerley sees where there should be frontal lobes a great big black void of air and says, "Holy Toledo, um, <laughs> what is going on with this fellow?" Well, well, I want to say too. Yeah. I feel like this paper is such an amazing resource that you've yeah. chronicled these really important cases, so yeah. that people don't have to go searching the ways that you've searched for all this information. Absolutely. I think that's amazing. I, I just going to ask you one more thing about the scan because uh, I, I think you attribute uh, some archives or something. Where, did you have to go there? How'd you find it? Yeah, this is um, it's an interesting story. Actually, that that pneumoencephalogram that I quoted was actually published in the 1948 paper. Oh, okay. And I did happen to find a photograph of it when I went to the archives in Louisville, but but it was already published. But uh, the compelling thing about JP, this patient, was that he was a gentleman car thief. Yeah. Well, why don't you? Yeah. So we're getting into the case. And I've asked you enough about the a gentleman about the leading and, up. I mean, and so naturally, you know, naturally, a gentleman car thief. It 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 yeah. kind of draws you in to want to know more. A gentleman yeah. car thief with air where there should be frontal lobes. Yeah. So tell why don't you why don't you take us a little through the case? The most striking thing about this is that by the age of two and a half, after what seemed like a normal early childhood before that with normal milestones, by the age of two and a half, this young fellow, JP, begins to do things that I've never heard of a two and a half year old doing. For instance, he became a wanderer. That's what uh, Dr. Ackerley described him as a wanderer. He would leave his home. Imagine a two and a half year old going out on his own, leaving his home. He would wander up to a mile away from his home. Wow. And sometimes the police would get him and try to figure out who he was. So they started putting ID on him. And uh, the police would bring him back home and said, please keep your child at home if you can. This happened over and over again. He would wander through Louisville. So I actually went down to Louisville to look where he lived and sort of figure out where he was going. And he was going into downtown Louisville on his own at two and a half. Everything I learned about this fellow made me more interested in him. The second thing about his childhood was that he was known 
as little Lord Chesterfield. What? <laughs> I, you probably have no idea who that was. No. No, I, I barely know. That's, that was an old by show or movie or, or book. I uh, Lord Chesterfield was, I think, an 18th century British diplomat who was known as a diplomat's diplomat. He was um, said to be an excellent speaker and was able to negotiate with great respect with anyone. And so he was sort of the model of the diplomat. And here's this little two and a half year old who would say things like, thank you, sir. And please, <laughs> you know, it was extraordinarily polite to adults. Hmm. But boy, did he do just terrible things as he was growing up. Well, yeah. When did he start to steal stuff and things? Or He never stole. Really? Except for cars. Well, that's that's just brilliant. cars. <laughs> and when, when you say he was a gentleman car thief, I don't know what that means. The gentleman part. It, um, he had this combination of Chesterfieldian manners ah. and a, prun- a penchant for stealing cars. He didn't steal cars because he wanted to sell them. He didn't steal cars to chop them up or anything like that. He stole cars because he liked the color or he liked the sound they made, or he liked the direction they were pointing. Mostly, he stole cars that reminded him of the cars that his dad sold. Hmm. Wait, wait, his dad his his dad was a car salesman? His dad was a car salesman. I actually uh, was able to find ads from his dad's uh, car dealership, and um, we haven't yet revealed the name of JP. So, um, hmm. But you, you know it, by the way? Oh, yes. We, I, I'm... Uh, been able to learn everything I think you can learn about this fellow. Um, but his, his dad sold Durant's, which was a kind of car that was uh, available in uh, the early 20th century. This is a, this JP was born in 1912. Yeah. So, so his dad was selling cars yeah. from around, you know, the first 20 years of the uh, 20th century. So, so the Durant was a thing then, you know. Speaking of childhood, is there anything else like unique about this person's childhood? You know, I, I, I tend to have a an eye for things like trauma and early attachment experiences. Was there anything like that that feels hmm. important about this case? Oh, was there? So, um, tra- <laughs> okay. trauma, not so much. Uh, I've not been able to find anything about trauma, but listen to some of these escapades. Um, JP used to refer to them as practical jokes, but um, when he was in first grade in elementary school, he defecated in a paint pot. Oh! Um, When he was in second grade, he took a classmate's glove and boot, defecated in them, and put the glove back in the coat. Mm. That year, he was caught exposing himself to two little girls in the class. Hmm. The teacher catches him and he looks up, he stands up, and he says, I beg your pardon, sir. <laughs> and he's, of course, transferred to another school. Hmm. He gets to another school, and he's caught stealing money from a girl in this school. He's caught masturbating openly in class. And, of course, he's transferred again to another school. Oh. That would make sense. <laughs> he's, he's already the ripe old age of 13. In 1926. I assume he's lost. I'm assuming he's lost his little Lord Chamberlain title at this point. <laughs> little Lord Chesterfield. Chesterfield. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, he is still exceedingly polite. And people still referred to his manners as Chesterfieldian. Wow. Right? But I was able to get a hold of, you know, various reports from his 
child intake in Louisville and stuff. Um, at age 13, he had his first psychiatric evaluation. And uh, the evaluation says he has no friends, he lies, he steals. Known in his neighborhood for having bad sex habits, it says in quotes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No sense of fairness or sportsmanship. So they diagnosed him as they did back in 1926 as a juvenile psychopath. And of course, with parental mishandling, they said. Although it seems to me, from what I can find, that his parents actually did try everything to try mm -hmm. to help him yeah. and were quite supportive. The only thing is his father demanded him to have adult manners and was quite rigid and moralistic. And his father even at one point attempted in what sounds like a planned way to beat him to try to keep him from going out and wandering around at age three. Um, that, of course, didn't work. That didn't work. By the time he's in high school, he notices cars with keys in the ignition. Remember, this is, you know, it's 1920s, late 1920s. People didn't lock their cars necessarily. No. So if he found keys in the ignition, he and especially if it was a shiny Durant, he would get in and take it for a drive. And he would drive it till it ran out of fuel. He would never change direction. He would continue going in whatever direction the car faced. Wow. Then he would call his mom and say, I, I did it again, mom. And yeah. they, I, I they can only pay yeah. off the family, bring him back home. I can only imagine the psychiatric evaluation at the time. I mean, between the sexual stuff and his father being a salesman, that's that sounds very uh psychoanalytic to me. Psychoanalytic, yeah. You could that's one way of looking at it. But the way I was look as I was reading this in the 1948 case report, I'm thinking, I've never seen a case report like mm -hmm. this. Yeah. It's amazing, right? So what I saw was a kid who had apparently completely destroyed frontal lobes from something that we don't know what it was at birth, yeah. who is drawn visually to things that he's familiar with from his father's shop. Yeah. Um, they're shiny. They move. You know, kids love cars at that age. Mm -hmm. um, he's drawn to them and he's just go, he's, he's involuntarily drawn to them more or less because of the damage in his frontal lobes. Um, that was what was so compelling to me. I wonder, though, that's what feels interesting to me is how did somebody connect the dots the way you just did? Because yeah. I think maybe like you're saying, Bob, uh -huh. somebody would have looked at this and been like, oh, this is like a traditionally psychoanalytic situation. Right. Or he's rebelling against the father. By but someone world. would have had to say, we need to look at his brain and yeah. do this crazy upside down air in the brain situation. And how did that get connected? Like, how did someone finally decide, let's look at yeah, What's it wouldn't be the on? normal thing that people would do at mm -hmm. the time, I would think. And it obviously took some time, so they didn't right away. Enter Dr. Spafford Ackerley. Mm. So JP had moved on to another school, this time a Catholic school. Then he was transferred again for bad behavior. This time his parents and the guidance counselors thought, well, military school might help him. And so off he went to a military school, I believe in Indiana. Mm. Two months after he gets there, he steals a teacher's car. And of course, it's a military school. Yep. So he was arrested and spent two years in juvenile detention in reform school. As soon as he got home, he began stealing cars again. And I found a newspaper article from 1932 about one of his arrests, right? So he begins stealing cars again. Just, it's very hard to keep him, to keep him from doing it. And eventually... The judge said, if you appear before me again, you're going up the river. You know, you're going to be put away for a long time. Yeah. So um, I'm just curious, how did he avoid it up till now? Yeah. 
uh, his father kept paying off people who he would steal cars from. Usually he just stole from neighbors on the street. Yeah. And and his father would pay them off and and make good on it and uh, kept him out of trouble. Had friends with the cops, but not any. You know, now the the judge, the police were tired of this, mm-hmm. um, and they were going to do something about it. So, um, at the age of twenty in 1933, the parents, with an attorney, make a call to Spaff Ackerley. His nickname was Spaff. Okay. I feel very close to Dr. Ackerley. I call him Spaff now. <laughs> I see. Um, and, uh, uh, make a call to Dr. Ackerley at University of Louisville. He's a child psychiatrist there. Ask, is there anything you can do to find out whether something's wrong with our child that might keep him from going to jail for these things? Mm. And so he says, okay, bring him over. And as they did back then, they admitted him to psychiatry at uh, University of Louisville, at the um, Louisville General Hospital. Mm-hmm. As part of the evaluation, Dr. Ackerley orders a pneumoencephalogram, which was the only way you could image the brain then. Ackerley was very, you know, very knowledgeable about neurology and frontal lobes. Uh, so he had this amazing pneumoencephalogram, and then they did what they did then, but we don't do now, which was exploratory neurosurgery. Oh, and they actually took they a actually, look, huh? They actually went in, took a look found this great big bag of nothing where his right frontal lobe should be. Wow. uh, And a very thin little left frontal lobe decided he must've had an abscess based on what they thought they saw there. And of course, Ackerley makes the report and the charges are dropped. Wow. So successful. Successful in that way. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that he didn't go to jail. He didn't go to jail. Yeah. He didn't necessarily stop wandering or taking cars either. Really? So- so then I thought, Ackerley is an interesting fellow. So I started to look into him mm. and I wanted to learn uh, more about how he happened to decide to do neurosurgery on this 20 year old, you know, and this is, I mean, this guy is just incredible. If you'll permit me yeah. to tell you one or two Ackerley stories, because yes. they're amazing. Uh, tell us about Spaff. So, is it Spaff? Spaff. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about Spaff. Spaff. Yeah, so Spaff was in World War One, in active duty in France. He got a bullet through the left knee, was wounded in September 1918, mm-hmm. and um, was taken prisoner by the Germans. Mm-hmm. He got osteomyelitis and osteomyelitis, and then after um, he was released finally at the end of the war, he required 22 different operations on his leg, and he was recovering from those in a Brooklyn Army hospital in 1920. When, this is, you know, you can't make this stuff up, right? Hmm. When he left AWOL from the hospital, why? He decided to accompany the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team, to Europe (laughs) as a self-appointed assistant coach and trainer at his own expense. (laughs) Now, why did he do this, right? Yeah. He had lost a number of buddies um, in the battle in France, Mm. and they didn't come home. So he went and found, he went, he wanted to get to Europe under some guys, uh, and um, he wanted to collect soil and take photographs of each of the graves of his friends who died in the war. Mm. And so he did that and brought the photographs and the soil back and delivered them to each of the 
of his comrades' families. Wow. Then he checks himself back into the Brooklyn Army Hospital and says, hey, guys, I'm back. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious if he had any uh, acumen as a coach. Is he, or is that just uh, Yeah, actually, he was, um, uh, from what I can understand, he uh, actually was quite physically uh, active and oh, quite okay. physically fit. <laughs> All right. Um, so, he, so he goes back, it's in the hospital. He, then he goes to Yale Medical School. But then an interesting twist I found as I was going, I went through his papers in um, the medical archives in, uh, in Louisville, trying to understand what happened to him. I find out that after he goes to Yale, he has psychiatric training at uh, Cornell Westchester, but uh, then it was just Westchester, I guess. But then for the rest of his training, he comes to Worcester State Hospital mm-hmm. from 1926 to 1930. While there, wait for this, mm-hmm. he becomes <laughs> he becomes my predecessor as training director of the residency <laughs> program. Is that true? <laughs> you, I'm just telling it's it's just <laughs> wow. So Ackerley was calling to oh, me, but you never, you, so you never met him to come to this archive. He wasn't. I imagine he wasn't your immediate predecessor. I never met him. He passed away. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, he was what sixty-five a weird years. World my predecessor. That, that all ended up that way. <laughs> wow. So what a case. Right. So that had to bias you in this case, but yeah. Um, yeah. So here I am in Louisville, and I'm reading his archives, and I say, "Holy crap." He actually yeah. was the training director in Worcester. So <laughs> our, our residency program actually descended from an 1895 program begun by Adolf Meyer. And uh, it was at Worcester State Hospital before it was at UMass, before UMass was created. So uh, so this is like in the long history, though, that like before we could visualize things and do other experiments. I mean, what we know about the brain, we knew from injuries. And what, what did this injury tell us about the frontal lobes? Mm. Well, it's a great question, right? So um, one of the remarkable things, well, one, I'll come back to um, Ackerley because that's going to be important for this. But one of the remarkable things about JP is that his behavior remained consistent throughout his reported life up through um, the last paper that Ackerley wrote about him was in 1964. Um, but it was remarkably consistent. He would be very gentlemanly and very polite and very engaging, and yet would have this behavior of looking for cars and taking them, and also just wandering the country. There's a lot of uh, episodes. I was actually find, able to find even newspaper reports of his escape from psychiatric hospitals and wandering out to Colorado, all sorts of interesting things. Can I ask Ralph, too, did the, did the sexual kind of acting out and exposure continue that we know of? No, the sexual acting out kind of damped down um, by the time he was a young man. Mm-hmm. By the time he was, uh, it had already stopped, I think, by the time he was 20. And did he ever like marry or have a family or do anything? He, he never married. He never had a family. In fact, I we searched trying to find any living relative because we wanted to tell his story and we wanted permission. It's not yet been 50 years since he died. Ah. And uh, we really tried. We used social media outreach. We uh, uh, were unable to find um, anyone. Um, He had no siblings. He had no offspring and he was never married. He had a couple of very interesting dates that we know about. Um, (laughs) Um, So his behavior was consistent. It never changed. It yeah. wasn't evil. He wasn't out to make a profit. He wasn't out to take advantage of people. He was not trying 
to get ahead by hurting others. He was simply attracted to whatever, you know, whatever attracted his attention. He focused on that for the moment, and then he would focus on something else. But he was a nice guy, from what I can tell you, from what I can see. I um, wanted to know what happened to him as he aged, because the story stops when he's in his late 40s or about 50 years old. The story stops with this 1964 paper. And Ackerley in this paper makes the comment that, of course, we will know the cause of his brain damage and we'll know the end of the story when eventually we have a chance to study his brain. He sort of Mm -hmm. alludes to the fact that, of course, he'll conclude the story later. But there was no paper. When JP dies and he examines the brain. Well, that was what he hinted at. Yeah. But there's no evidence that it ever happened. I say. Wouldn't Ackerley be older than him, too? Like, isn't there a chance Ackerley died? It seemed unlikely that Ackerley would outlive him. Yeah. Yeah. One would, there's a lot of questions like that that we had. (laughs) Right. And so I asked the question I said, what if we could find JP's brain? And what if we could put this together? This is the best reported early childhood frontal damage case in history. There's never been this much information published about one case so that we can look at his development and his relationships and everything through life. What if we could find his brain? And so when we were working on that paper, the 2018 paper, I did, you know, I kind of went down the rabbit hole again and, and, um, you seem to have a pension for that, but okay. Yeah, I do actually. You know, one of the things about that paper is that we learned never to believe everything you read, right? We wanted to get primary sources to find out what the real stories of these things were. And often they were not the stories we were told in medical school. But so I became convinced from what I learned about Ackerley. I knew he went and spent six months learning neurology at Queen's Square in England. I knew he had written another paper on frontal lobe function. And I could tell from his uh, writings that he knew all of the famous neuropsychologists of Mm -hmm. the early 20th century. So there is no way that Spafford Ackerley would not have done a brain cutting. Couldn't find it in the literature. So I started doing internet searches and I started kind of trying to figure out, did anyone ever talk about it to anyone? And I found a 2007 medical meeting where a neuroradiologist in Louisville mentions that uh, years ago he was present at the postmortem brain examination of a famous patient named JP. Wow. Wow. So you actually found <laughs> you it. You found it. Wow. And I started making phone calls. And uh, the guy, unfortunately, had a very common name. So took me a little bit because he was retired. Um, but a lovely, lovely fellow named John Rice, who told me what he remembered and said, you know, one day I had planned to write a book about this. Uh, and uh, anyway. If only he had, it probably would have saved you a lot of time. But yeah. Uh, based on talking to him, I, I tried to get him to remember who was present at the brain cutting. And we call it a brain cutting, a postmortem brain examination, because serial slices are made. Of right, because you cut it. Yeah. Right. So, uh, But it sort of sounds crude to people when we say that. So I thought I'd give you a little explanation. So Fair enough. I, I got a list of who was there and began trying to find them all. And of course, some of their names changed. They got married and divorced, whatever, and, and um, found them and decided to fund this myself because I thought it'd be interesting. Decided that me and one of my co-authors, Barbara Schildkraut from Harvard, that we would fly down to Louisville, invite everybody who was present at the brain cutting to come 
to Louisville. I got the department there to um, give me a conference room for a weekend and I hired a videographer and gathered these people together and asked them all for their recollections of that day. That's amazing. <laughs> so we had 10 people around the table and the neuropathologist had passed away, but we knew how, who he was now. Um, no one knew where the brain went. There was rumors that there was video, but nobody knew where it was. And uh, But there were some photographs that one person had. And who was that one person? The grandson of Spafford Ackerley, who's a police surgeon now in Louisville. <laughs> so through him, I started calling Spafford Ackerley's other living family members, including his daughters, and interviewed them. One of them agreed to come to Louisville to be at this uh, video during that, you know, and I asked all of them, did you know JP? Well, yes, several of them actually remembered JP and could tell me about him. And one of the most interesting was Carita Warner, one of Dr. Ackerley's daughters, who I have on video saying she was a teenager taking typing lessons from Dr. Ackerley's secretary, comes out of the hospital, comes down the steps, meets JP coming up the steps. They have a brief conversation. He was a perfect gentleman and then said to this 13-year-old, Will you marry me? Ah. <laughs> In all seriousness. So it was one story after another emerged. And uh, eventually, I was able to track down the video of the brain examination and get the photos. So what we did was we made, there were some very high definition photos that were made, fortunately, by a very good photographer, one of the co-authors of the paper we've just written. Uh, we blew them up. We got I digitized the video uh, when I found it, and then um, enlarged that and got a neuropathologist who I work with at UMass to carefully go through all the brain photos we had to try to figure out the cause of what happened to JP. And we think we did. Because they didn't, I take it they didn't understand at the time. At the time, the neurosurgeon, well, they, I think Dr. Ackerley said that he strongly suspected that there was some no. um, birth injury, uh -huh. but the neurosurgeon had said that this looks like um, an abscess, which, you know, and theoretically it could be possible, but so we got a good look at it and we were able to see that it most likely was a hemorrhagic injury. It turns out I went and got JP's birth certificate, found out the doctor who delivered him at home on a cold mm -hmm. winter day on December 29th of 1912, um, and it was snowing, and um, there was a very long labor, and believe it or not, he weighed 11 and a half pounds oh. at birth. I called the head of OBGYN at UMass, and she said something like, she draws in breath and goes, 11 and a half pounds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I assume his mother had gestational diabetes. It looks like Hugh Nelson Lavelle, the doctor who delivered him, who was apparently quite skilled, this home delivery, I see he lived about a block and a half away, so he probably was close by to get them on a snowy day. Mm. He um, had to use forceps to deliver him. Uh. And the mother suffered quite a bit of lacerations during the delivery, but JP looked normal. And I actually found a childhood picture of him that bears that out. He seemed normal. He didn't have any particular seizures or anything in early childhood. He didn't have dysmorphic features. He seemed smart too. So 
It turns out, though, that probably in the torsion of delivering him, they must have severed what's called a venous sinus, a great big vein draining yep. um, the brain, and it bled yep. into both frontal lobes. That's what we think happened. And so we've recently submitted a paper um, explaining our uh, theory about that. What feels so remarkable to me is that like this person seemed so normal without like a huge chunk of their brain. Right. Who would think that you could lose that much of your brain? And, and you would just be like, still be alive like the major and, and side effects is you steal cars. Right. Well, I exactly. would think like the major side effects would be, would be like massive intellectual deficits, right. like Un- seizures, yeah. like right. just, and it's like, yeah, he's a gentleman. Yeah. who still Well, it's, it's not true that he was otherwise normal. He had a number. He, he never could do certain things. He couldn't form relationships with other people that were mutually satisfying relationships. But things like his motor function and things like that were- Motor function all 100% normal. His Intelligence. I mean, do you find that at all surprising? I mean, he was probably in the just around average intelligence. Maybe his IQ was between 90 and 100. It was measured several times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he did have a lot of abnormalities. He could not plan for the future. He couldn't learn from the past. He couldn't learn- the things that we all learn as children automatically. You don't do this because this will happen, that kind of thing. Right. But but these are higher level functions. Does it surprise you like that it's the cognition that was affected and that other more basic functions of the brain weren't? Or is that just no, that doesn't how surprise you think about the front or that just how you think about the frontal lobes? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. This was conf- his damage was mostly confined to the frontal lobes. And now mm-hmm. we know it was confined to the frontal lobes because we've seen the brain. But uh No. In fact, the reason this case is so interesting is that this case in itself, where we now have the brain pathology to back it up, shows that prefrontal damage can cause a permanent, enduring, lasting personality change and certain cognitive changes without affecting others. It kind of helps us understand the role of the prefrontal cortex in child development. Now, the other unexpected thing was as we were interviewing people, we unexpectedly found um, that JP was readmitted in um, toward the end of his life to Louisville General Hospital. And I was able to get quite a few of the documents related to that, um, including further testing. I was able to find, believe it or not, his CAT scan. He had a shunt put in because for normal pressure hydrocephalus, was able to find that report. Interestingly, some psychology reports from his last few years of life. And the striking thing was his personality and his cognitive features were almost completely unchanged from young. Here he was 64 years old. He never developed dementia or anything else. Well, he did develop dementia in the last few months of his life. He probably from hydrocephalus and he had bilateral subdurals, uh, probably from falling in the nursing home. But his behavior, his his manners, his consistency, his being drawn to stimuli like he was never changed. Okay, what did he die from? Uh, what I believe happened. If it's a long story, I withdraw the uh, question. Okay. No, <laughs> what, what I believe happened is that it was complications of the shunt that they put in. I say, oh God. And he was 64 when he died? He was 64. Yeah. Wow. You know, this is a conversation for another day, but I want to say where my mind is going because I I have thought a lot about this with the case of Phineas Gage and other ones as, as someone who studies religion and spirituality yeah. and morality. It, it really like blows my mind that mm-hmm. changes like f- very physical changes in the brain can be so related to personality change. It always yeah. makes me wonder sort of like 
who are we? Yeah. Where does like our our sense of who we are, our morality, like come from? When it and and I, it bothers me, or it makes me feel like is bothered by the fact that happen. like if something yeah. happened to my frontal yeah. lobe, my morality and sense of like purpose, all these sure. things could be so altered. Right. And cases like this, kind of like that's where my mind goes. I, I also wonder. By I mean, this was a person with a very obvious brain deficit, mm-hmm. but I do wonder about. You know, there's plenty of forensic cases now, maybe not plenty, but a number of forensic cases where they've tried to make neuropsychiatric arguments for sociopathic behavior, right? You, but of, of finding more, much more subtle things. And I just wonder about that if there's something to that. If, you know, sure, a big deficit like this can make a person turn into a thief, but surely more subtle things that aren't as easily visualizable on a X-ray could probably do the same, right? Well, yes and no. Remember, from this description, there can be no question that JP was not a sociopath. He liked shiny cars. But he'll be interpreted that way by people who just were sort of superficially looking Exactly, at superficially. And I've been involved in a number of legal cases where I've been asked to evaluate the evidence about frontal dysfunction and various things that people did. And there definitely are contributions um, that can happen. But I don't think it's simply a matter of brain. I think it's a matter of environment plus brain. When I teach general psychology, I make my students do a paper on Cecil Clayton, who was somebody who had a frontal lobe injury. He ended up afterwards, it was a complicated story, he ends up murdering somebody and then he's executed. And I ask my students to grapple with whether or not he deserved to be executed. Um, And some of these questions of just like how... Yeah, yeah, the morality of it all, I guess I'll yeah. stop there. It's, it's just this is this is who we are. Our prefrontal cortex is a very important aspect of what becomes who we are. You mentioned Phineas Gage, and just to draw a distinction very quickly, because I think you're probably running over here. Phineas Gage is the most misunderstood case report in history. For for generations, psychology professors and medical professors have been passing on lies about him to their students. Yeah. You know, you'd yeah. think he was like a you'd think he was sexually disinhibited, that he stole things, that you know, that none of that ever happened. He had executive he, he had executive dysfunction. He became a stagecoach driver in Chile and was very dependable on the job, by the way. He enjoyed a considerable amount of rehabilitation. But he was quite emotional, apparently, right? At least as as described in case reports, he could become suddenly explosively emotional. Yeah, that's what I... Is that not correct? Yeah, I never could find us. We we went back, all the way back, to everything written about him in in 1848 to um, 1868, and uh, there is no description, zero, of him having a temper problem. In fact, he babysat his niece and nephew and liked to tell (laughs) them stories. So it's all all lies. Everything I if read any, is if is any just, of my students yeah. are listening and I've told you about Phineas Gage, um, my apologies. <laughs> yeah. Every so everything we thought and that's why we do recommend your uh, article because it does get into the many things that we thought yes. are, are not true. But we're gonna have I I we'd love to talk more about Phineas Gage, but I think who's a another great case, and I recommend people read about him if they don't know about him. But I guess read it from you because I guess I can't trust anything else that I've read. Uh, but I, I do think we have to start wrapping up. Yeah, I have to say, again, I, I think I could spend so much more time picking your brain about, again, this connection between personality and morality and our yes. brains. Again, something about those connections like give me like a, ooh, yeah. I don't like that. I like to believe I've made it. It makes you, makes you think. But I'm, I'm, I'm just so, I am so grateful for the work that you've done in, in this paper and, and 
all the work yeah. you've done making sense of our frontal lobes. So, yeah. So we've been listening to the Mind Dive podcast with Dr. Benjamin today. Dr. Benjamin, do you want to have the last word? Any advice? Well, advice, I'm not so sure, but the last word is this, that we need healthy prefrontal lobes to be successful in life. And if we don't have them, we're unlucky. And it's very hard to be a success without well-functioning prefrontal cortex, as both of you apparently have. Well, I don't know. I haven't had that uh, pneumoencephalogram. Don't ever have a pneumoencephalogram. We'll ask you one scheduled. Right. Uh, So once again, uh, this has been the Mind Dive podcast. Uh, We've been with Dr. Sheldon Benjamin today, and thank you very much for talking with us. My pleasure. We've been your hosts. I'm Dr. Carrie Harrell. I'm Dr. Bob Bowen. Thanks Thanks for for diving diving in. in. The Mind Dive podcast is presented by the Menninger Clinic. If you're curious about the professional experiences of mental health clinicians, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. For more episodes like this, visit www.menningerclinic.org. To submit a topic for discussion, send us an email at podcast at menninger.edu.